1: And so we move into the final week of February. It's Monday, uh, February 22nd. And uh, I don't know about how you're feeling about the time out there, but on one hand, uh, in the midst of the pandemic, time seems to be stuck in place. It seems like day to day we're not moving forward at all. On the other hand, the calendar, from my point of view, keeps flying by. It'll be March in a week. And uh, that kind of astonishes me. It means, of course, also that in just a couple weeks, we will uh, be up against a a, a a truly stunning anniversary, basically one year. March 16th of last year was basically the date that things really shut down across the country, and uh, we're only a couple weeks away from uh, the one-year anniversary of that. We have an awful lot uh, to talk about on Political Rewind today, but, but I'd like to start just um, making mention of... Another uh, troubling moment in our history. And I, I'm going to read it, a, 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 a report, excuse me, directly from the New York Times, a couple of paragraphs of a piece that they ran yesterday. A nation numbed by misery and loss is confronting a number that still has the power to shock 500,000 roughly one year since the first known death by the coronavirus in the united states an unfathomable toll has arrived actually now the loss of half a million people no other country has counted so many deaths in the pandemic more americans have perished from covid 19 than on the battlefields of world war I, world war ii and the vietnam war combined but the milestone comes at a hopeful moment new virus cases are down sharply deaths are slowing and vaccines are steadily being administered, even as there's new concern about emerging variants of the virus, and it now may be months before the pandemic is contained. Here in Georgia, we're now at almost 805,000 people infected with COVID-19, 14,633 people have died from the disease, Georgia has now, this Governor last late last week announced that he has opened up four locations. They're about to open four locations across the state where people can be vaccinated uh, up in Habersham County at the Fairgrounds in Clarksville, at the Macon State Farmers Market, at the Albany Forestry Commission offices in Albany, and then at the Delta Delta Flight Museum on the uh, southwest side of Atlanta, just into. Clayton County. But the governor's office also released a news release the other day saying that while uh, uh, people seem to be really eager to get vaccinated in three of those four uh, locations, it's saying that in Doherty County in Albany, uh, people are not registering. There's now a site where you can register statewide in hopes of getting a vaccine and registrations are lagging dramatically, the governor's office says, in Doherty County. Amelia Brock, I wonder, I'll send you a link. Maybe we can put up a link to myvaccinationgeorgia.com that people can use if they want to register uh, for uh, vaccine. And meanwhile, in DeKalb County, uh, the AJC reports this morning that Dr. Sandra Ford, public health officials along with her, are saying people are desperate to find a way to get vaccinated. So the continuation on the vaccine uh, uh, front continues to be very troubling here in the state of Georgia. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about that during the show today. And let me first get our panel introduced. Uh, it's Monday, which means Jim Galloway, the legend of Georgia political analysis, is back with us. He may have retired from the AJC, but we are never going to allow him to retire from political rewind. Jim, it's just chilling to think about what this virus has done to our lives and, and, and led to the deaths of so many people here in the state and across the country.
2: Yeah, I mean, if, if you, if, if you live in Georgia, you know of someone who has struggled with the virus or who has died from it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it is, uh, the, the the footprint is, is amazing. And I, I, I had my own little experience with it, uh, last week. I, I was, I was geared up for a, a, a shot at 1 p.m. today to get my second, uh, Moderna shot and uh i got a i i got a text and an email from the cobb douglas uh uh public health department that said uh no we're gonna have to postpone that because the 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 weather uh the, the the weather that swept across the nation kind of it 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 literally froze transportation in Memphis and kentucky uh so even as we're opening these huge massive uh, massive uh, vaccination centers there's just not enough of the stuff to go around.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about your experience. It's one shared by many, many people. Um, and, and the State Department of Public Health does say they're expecting a big supply of vaccine uh, later this week. So I hope you and the many people in your situation will get those shots. Um, we're also very happy to be welcomed today. Welcome back to the show, Representative Sam Park, Democrat from Lawrenceville. Um, Sam Park, are, what are your constituents saying to you about coronavirus and about getting the vaccine. How, how urgent are their concerns about those issues? Good morning, Bill.
3: Happy to be with you again. Um, so there's a lot of demand uh, in Gwinnett County for the uh, coronavirus vaccine still. I've had constituents reach out, uh, expressing a lot of concern and frustration about how many hours they've had to spend, uh, given how quickly the slots uh, fill up. Um, hopefully, as the Biden administration increases uh, the supply of vaccines that Georgia receives, we'll see some of those challenges ameliorated. Um, but of course, the the disproportionate uh, distribution of vaccines where minority communities, particularly Black and Brown communities, um, aren't being vaccinated, remains concerning.
1: Yeah, uh, down in Savannah, uh, the uh, legislators from Savannah and uh, this and the Savannah health. Uh, 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 largest health provider are all saying, please get vaccine to our minority communities. They really need it desperately. And of course, that's something that people across the state, uh, public health officials, are uh, starting to look more realistically at trying to do. I'm glad you mentioned that. Riley Bunch is with us. She, of course, is the Georgia State House reporter for CNHI News, which means she reports for number of newspapers in somewhat smaller markets around the state. Riley, you're in the middle of your second session, you told us, of the Georgia General Assembly. How does it feel down there at the Capitol these days?
0: You know, it's a pretty weird environment. The halls aren't really bustling as much as usual. And, and it's strange to think, you know, we're coming up on this year of the, the first two cases in Georgia Um, COVID cases in Georgia being announced by Governor Brian Kemp, I remember the press conference we had in his ceremonial office, and there were 40 press members crammed in there without masks, you know, just think of how far we've come and how weird of a time it is right now compared to a year ago.
1: Um, We're also joined today by someone who is a longtime political uh, uh, insider here in Georgia, who could certainly tell Riley Bunch that it's always a little weird down at the Georgia State Capitol, regardless of whether there's a pandemic or not. That's Republican strategist Heath Garrett. How you doing, Heath? And Bill, it's great <laughs> to
4: be with you, and you're exactly right. Every year is uh, a new level of weirdness in the state
1: legislature. Um, all right. Well, I want to talk about one of the issues down there that has, from the very beginning, from 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 late last year, When uh, legislators began talking about bills they planned to introduce that were going to change how Georgians vote, primarily by absentee voting, but also early voting changes, uh, that has continued to be, I think it's safe to say, the single most uh, controversial issue at the Capitol this year. And I want to get all of you uh, to weigh in on this. But, Jim, let me just uh, quickly start with you on this. Uh, Republicans in the House are preparing this week. They've, inter- they've kind of consolidated a bill in, into one large bill, a 48-page bill, a number of the changes they want to make. We've talked about some of them on the show before. There have been uh, effort, photo ID for absentee uh, ballot uh, applications. There's a bill that would require photo ID for the application as well as when you actually vote. So we've talked about that. Some in the Senate want to end absentee no excuse uh, balloting, um, although that's probably not going to get very far in the House. But I want to start, if I can, Jim, with one that is is new, at least on my radar screen. And that's this 48-page bill includes a measure to end Sunday early voting and to limit Saturday early voting to only one Saturday, right?
2: Right, right. And it also limits the uh it uh, puts a hard uh, hard limit on the the uh the time allowed for issuing absentee ballots uh and uh and delivering them to voters and for voters to uh to mail them in. Uh, One of the other ones the one of the other uh, provisions, I think, and Riley can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is that it would bar it would bar uh, uh, county election offices from accepting grants from from outside out, out from th- from third party sources that allowed them to that the that, that allowed them last year to to really bump up the number of electoral uh, poll workers that they that they had and this this was a this was a program that was instituted and encouraged by uh Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger a, a Republican you now it, it's you know we can yeah. I I have been thinking of this uh about this quite a bit and and you can draw the parallels to to what Democrats did in 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 2000 uh, 2001 uh, to protect uh, as they saw their majority shrinking, but it, it, this is beginning. But just the, the the regional nature of this. This isn't happening just in Georgia. It's happening in 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 many states across the country. In, in many ways, this is coming to 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 resemble the the massive res- resistance movements. Of, uh, that we saw in the South during the 1950s, when the U.S. Supreme Court was was starting to uh, to to, to uh, engage on on uh, school segregation, it, it's and, and it, this time the fight is over 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 how or whether we will accept these demographic changes that are occurring in every state in in the in the nation.
1: Um, Riley, and then I want to get Sam and Heath in on this. One of the reasons that Sunday early voting, a a barring of Sunday early voting, struck me particularly is, of course, uh, that's always been the souls on the polls day. That's a day in which uh, uh, black churches across the state have rallied their uh, congregants and people in their community to go to the polls and cast early ballots. And and I, I would love, maybe Heath has been in touch with some of the Republicans who are supporting that, but I would love to know what the rationale is behind why that no longer, I mean, are, are we not trying to encourage as many people as possible to get to the polls, Riley?
0: Well, absolutely. And I think it's kind of indicative, you know, just looking from the outside in of Republicans know that their ground game efforts were, you know, lacking compared to the Democrats. Uh, there are a number of provisions in the bill that kind of impact these very large, widespread Democratic mobilization efforts, so, you know, like social polls, like mobile voting units so it's it's kind of not surprising to see that these things you know the sunday voting has been done kind of proposed to be done away with um but it will impact you know disproportionately minority voters faith leaders trying to get their communities out and it's a big concern for voting advocates
1: heath and then sam why don't you heath you go ahead and then sam i'd love to have you weigh in
4: Yeah, Bill, I think, look, going back to Jim's historical perspective, I think that election integrity and suppression debates are now much more like gerrymandering than they are like uh, the 1960s. And I know that one side of the aisle would like to say this is all about suppression, but you're giving people a minimum of three weeks and – multiple ways to vote absentee ballot. So we're not, it's not like we're going back to one day voting between eight and eight, and it's really difficult to vote or register to vote in the state of Georgia. Let's set the baseline there. We're now, it's like gerrymandering, has become hyper-partisan both sides. Anytime there's a change to election laws, the left and the Democratic friends are going to always yell suppression because there's one person who it's more convenient to vote at seven o'clock on a Sunday night than it is for somebody else. However, we as Republicans have to be smart uh, and and recognize that that is a real political reality that we're dealing with. And that, uh, you know, just because both sides are getting partisan about how and when we're going to do elections and how we're going to vote. You know, my my Republican colleagues need to be smart about this. The suppression myth, according to some people, and the suppression concern, which is legitimate among some people, I think, uh, you know, is is a political reality we got to face. But we're not talking about. Dramatic uh, changes here, I, I think, in the number of opportunities to vote. And I think at the end of the day, the bill you'll see, Bill, coming out of the legislature, won't have some of these things. The one fundamental point that I think my Republican uh, brothers and sisters are doing in the legislature, they're trying to create uniformity amongst the counties. We had a election in November, and again, in January, we had different hours available in different counties, your availability to get to early voting is different in rural areas. And so that's the one principle I think they can stand on is creating some uniformity around these county voting so that no matter where you live in Georgia, you have the same opportunity to vote in person and by absentee ballot.
1: Sam, Democrats obviously are fighting furiously against many of these measures.
3: So, so, yeah, uh, House Bill 531 and these Republican efforts to make it diff- more harder, more difficult for Georgians to vote is incredibly, incredibly concerning and undemocratic. Um, I think context is always important. And I've heard from many Republican colleagues that you know, we have to pass these measures because millions of Americans continue to have concerns about election integrity and security. Well, I think it's important to note that millions of Americans may still believe that because of the lie that Trump spouted that there was widespread election fraud and that the election was stolen. Uh, If Secretary Raffensperger, if national security experts said that there was no widespread fraud, that these were some of the most secure elections that were conducted in modern history, how can we then justify, reasonably justify, efforts to make it more difficult for citizens to vote. Not only do I think that's undemocratic, I think that's un-American. And again, it's incredibly, incredibly concerning uh, that they are trying to continue to push these issues that would particularly disproportionately make it harder for working people and for people of color to participate in in our democracy. When it comes to uniformity, I think, uh, sure, we can find some common ground, but we also have to acknowledge the reality that uh, in, in metro Atlanta counties, there's a lot population is much dense. And and we have to ensure that we provide our our local election offices the resources and ability to ensure that, again, every citizen can participate in our democratic process.
1: You know, I want to, Heath, I'd like to pick up on what you said. Um, you know, Galloway's uh, uh, comparison is very, very dramatic, obviously, saying this reminds him of what happened across the South, and Georgia included, of course, after uh, uh, the courts and, and co- Congress started ruling uh, on, uh, you know, equal rights for uh, Africans, American, uh, Americans, and, and how whites in the South tried to push back against some of those changes, uh, that's pretty dramatic. You compare it to gerrymandering. So let's use your comparison, and, uh, and I'd like to get a sense of this from all of you. Uh, he's, we know clearly— that partisan gerrymandering is, whether it's Democrats under Roy Barnes or Republicans who will deal with uh, redistricting under a Republican governor, Brian Kemp, are uh, the lines are drawn for partisan advantage. They are, are drawn to get as many of your own party into power, into offices, uh, whether it's Congress, legislature, as possible. When you compare these voting bills to partisan gerrymandering— are you suggesting again, whether it's Democrats or Republicans that these bills are being introduced to either uh, expand or contract the number of people who are going to vote for the other side in a given election?
4: Well and, and let me be clear to the listeners. I'm not saying that I agree with any of this um, but I think that's what is a closer analogy to. yes, uh, there's no question that Stacey Abrams and her efforts around uh, voter suppression are driven by political motives, right? Every political consultant knows that the number one motivator for an African American voter in the state of Georgia is the fear of suppression. And so she built Fair Fight and its entire apparatus around the political knowledge that if she can kind of push the suppression narrative, that uh, she can change election laws in a way that benefit Democrats. And so the idea that the Republicans, there's not going to be an equal and opposite reaction on that. Both sides need to be very careful with this. I have a problem with this, the fair fight suppression myth, as I call it, because fair fight has lost every single legal case brought since 2018, and the AJC can't find a single voter that was denied the right, to va- the right to vote in 2018 or 2020. We've had record participation. At the same point in time, Trump and team have followed the Stacey Abrams playbook and created a myth of, of integrity problems in Georgia that don't exist either. And so what I say is the pot's on both partisan uh, hats, and I think that's where they're going with election law, and I think both sides are engaged in it. If my Democratic friends were as interested in poor rural white people voting as they were in urban uh, minority poor, then they would have, a, like, to me, a better leg to stand on on this, and vice versa. We Republicans ought to be making it as easy to vote as possible in the urban areas.
1: Okay. I, I do want to make one correction, I think, to what you said. he, And that is, I think, the biggest case that Fair Fight has, uh, where they've rolled together many of their concerns about how the election of 2018 on unfolded is still pent is now in fact moving forward in federal court. And there is in fact a, a big, big case, Jim, aren't I right, that's still going to right. be heard in federal court.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's been slimmed down, but it's 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 still very active. Okay. And there were and there were right. very many there were quite a few rulings in twenty eighteen by judges across the state. Uh, in response to fair fight uh, lawsuits challenging uh, this matter or that matter, I think Sam uh, Sam can talk. Uh, 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 I think there was a uh, uh, a big effort in in Gwinnett County uh, that that Sam could speak to.
3: Um, I, I know there was a lot of concern when it came to the way in which they were dispropor- uh When it comes to voter registration. Uh, I, I think it was the exact match uh, uh, mm-hmm. system policy that they had in place, which again disproportionately made it more difficult for people of color uh, to to register to vote. Um, but I, I want to address real quickly, if I may, the the so-called myth of voter suppression. Voter suppression is not a myth. Uh, in fact, Georgia's had, and and this country has had a long history of voter suppression, uh, going to Jim Crow, where where. You made it more difficult for people to vote, and we are seeing a, a modern-day version of these, these nefarious, subtle ways, again, to make it more difficult to vote. You know, One of the best ways, I think, in which we can make it easier for urban folks as well as rural folks to vote is send out um, um, a- absentee applications to everyone, just as, uh, uh, I think, Oregon, some Republican, and Democratic states
1: on the West Coast. So I want to – Heath, I take – I'm going to take Heath's point. I want to say uh, let's give Heath for the moment uh, the uh, point that there's no question that Stacey Abrams' fair fight action has uh, been uh, uh, accusing Republicans of voter suppression uh, certainly since the 2018 election cycle, and there's still adjudication to come out of their accusations. But, but Raleigh, I want to go to the other side of that again. Uh, Certainly, one of the things you can say about what Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight organization initially was launched to do, and we're going to talk in a few minutes about Kelly Leffler looking to do something quite similar on the Republican side of the aisle, Fair Fight was initially all about increasing the number of people who could vote in the state. Now, clearly, they were focusing on populations that they assumed would be more likely to vote Democratic than Republican. But it's one thing to talk suppression. It's another thing to talk about efforts to expand voting. Um, And this is where I I kind of have this concern about if that becomes partisan, the question of expanding voting becomes partisan, then maybe Sam Park has an awfully good point when he says that feels anti-democratic. Well,
0: I mean, it's absolutely hard to reconcile all these changes, you know, that are being offered up even small to big after such a high turnout election, right? You know, we had record number of in-person voters. We had record number of absentee ballots used. Um, so it, it's, like I said, hard to reconcile making changes to a system that seemingly worked this year. And, you know, there was this huge movement to expand um, voters. But I think it's, it's, You know, Republicans are successful in this. I think that they're going to have to uh, explain, you know, really well why they are making these changes on the first day of legislative session. There were voters out on the steps concerned about what changes would come later in the session. You know, it's, it's hard, you know, to explain these changes after such a successful election amid a pandemic.
1: So Heath, you believe there's going to be, I think, a good deal of compromise. You essentially said that uh, in your first comments about this big, this 48-page uh, bill that's been presented for the House, and and I'll give you an example of what what I'm, I'm interested in in thinking about here. Um, I said on our show on th- last week one day. That when David, Ra- the last time David Ralston was on our show was before the 2020 November election. I think, Galloway, you were with me that day. And Ralston at that point was expressing his concern about the expansion of absentee balloting. He was one of the people in the camp of saying he thought it opened the door for substantial fraud. And yet, Heath, he seems to have backed away from that. Uh, now that the session is underway, because it's my understanding that Ralston does not support the bill that senators want to get through, which is to end, no excuse, absentee balloting. Uh, so there, there is room for uh, uh, some of this to be clawed back in compromises, it appears, Heath. And then, Sam, I'd love your take on that.
3: No,
4: I think that's right. I think we need to be clear about a few things. First of all, nobody is talking about anything in regards to voter registration or dramatically limiting anybody's ability to vote. Remember, Georgia is one of the – it's not necessarily the easiest state in the country, but it's one of the top five easiest states in the country to both register to vote – uh, you can do it online. Governor Kent, when he was secretary of state, made that possible, made it the number one state to register online in the country. It's still, and, and Stacey Abrams took advantage of that. And I've said on this show a hundred times, it's at all due respect to her organization's ability to get out and get her voters registered. She's allowed to do that. So nobody is talking about doing anything to take away anybody's registration to vote. And I'll say to Sam's Statement. I agree wholeheartedly as somebody who grew up in post desegregated, I I know the history of the South, but the history of the South 40 and 50 years ago should not be compared to what's been happening in modern day Georgia. And I think that's a real uh, negative for us. And I'd finally say there is going to be room for compromise. I think the speaker and the governor really want the election legislation to focus on those things that go straight to security and into integrity uh, and not to uh, necessarily ease of voting and these other uh, efforts.
3: So we had a big debate uh, in the Georgia State Legislature a year or two ago about uh, the way in which we would be conducting our elections. And over and over and over again, we 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 shared a report from the National Academy of Sciences and Engineering, which was saying that hand-marked paper ballots is a gold standard for election integrity. And yet every single Republican voted to move forward with these uh, Dominion voting machines uh, which, which there still seems to be a lot of concern about and so if we want to talk about election integrity then then let's be let, let's use science let's use facts um, in, in order to move that that issue forward um, when it comes to compromising on a bill like 531 any effort to make it more difficult to vote is a, is a non-starter at least from from my personal perspective i think it's again unacceptable it is undemocratic and it, it is unjustified. And if I could add one more point to all of this, I don't think folks are turning out to vote. I don't think we saw massive turnout during the 2020 elections because of the narrative of voter suppression. Folks turned out because they wanted change. They wanted effective government. They wanted a government that would do something about the pandemic. And and I think folks in Georgia, they want somewhat they want government that works for them when it comes to healthcare. We have one of the highest uninsured rates in the country. Education remains to be underfunded. And so I, I would push back on that idea, and, and ultimately I think the objectives of Fair Fight is noble, which is to have a fair fight in which policy debates, candidates with the
1: best ideas, can ultimately prevail. Jim, I want to give you a quick comment before we got to get to a break.
2: Okay, and, and, and actually I was just going to hit up Riley for a point of information. I mean, does, does this 48-page bill, does it, does, does it end uh, uh, automatic voter registration at the DMV?
0: Not that I have seen or read, but I thought would be something that we should another, check on. That,
2: that's, an, that's another legislation, then.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that. Thank, thank. I was going to point that out too, Jim. There is, in fact, a measure that would end automatic voter registration at DMV, and uh, we'll see if that tracks forward along with this big, comprehensive bill that the House is now going to look at. Apparently, this week. All right, uh, we've got to get to a break. I want to get that out of the way and come back with a lot more on political rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. We're joined today by Jim Galloway, Riley Bunch, uh, Heath Garrett, and Representative Sam Park of Gwinnett County. Um, You know, Galloway, I remember we're old enough, and so is Garrett. I don't—Riley and Sam are both still young in the political world. (laughs) We're old enough—we kind of remember when there were seasons to political campaigns. You know, an election would come to an end— there would be a break for a while before people began talking about running for the next election cycle. We'd normally be in one of those breaks if times were what they were, Galloway, but they're not. The elections never stop. We already know that David Perdue's team has at least saved a place for him uh, by filing legal papers Papers should he decide he wants to challenge Raphael Warnock in 2022. And now Kelly Loeffler has announced that she is creating... An organization modeled in many ways, I think, after what uh, Stacey Abrams did with Fair Fight, uh, to try to expand uh, voter registrations among Republicans, which many people assume is her first uh, move in thinking about launching another campaign as well. Jim,
2: right, right. Uh, it's uh, Greater Georgia, I think, is the is is the name of the organization, mm-hmm. and uh, in a in a in an interview that. Uh, uh, My former colleague, uh, Greg Bluestein just published uh, uh, Loeffler said, yes, indeed, she is contemplating a race against a 2022 race against uh, Raphael Warnock, who beat her on January 5. So so it's it's uh, I I think that has more possibility than David Perdue. uh, But 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 the 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 concept of of Loeffler as a as a as kind of a voting rights a uh, specialist—it's—it's it, it's got a huge—it it has a huge hurdle, uh, just given the fact that uh, when that Texas challenge to Georgia's election results came through, uh, she signed on to it. She and both she and David Perdue signed on to it. So, so both Loeffler and Perdue will have to explain to 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 five million Georgia voters why they they didn't want those votes to count. That's a, that's that's a, that's a pretty big dilemma.
1: Uh, Heath, I'm curious. From uh, well, go ahead. You make whatever comment you want, and I've got a couple questions for you.
4: <laughs> well, no, and I agree. I agree with Jim. I mean, I think Greg Bluestein uh, nailed it. She's a complicated messenger at best in this effort. There's no doubt that we as Republicans need an effort like this uh, to counter the success that I respect from what uh, Abrams and Fairfight have done from a purely political standpoint and organizing and voting. Since the 2012 election, uh, where Romney barely won the state of Georgia, there's been this kind of idea that there are these 400 to 600,000 Republican leaning rural voters that just haven't registered or participated for whatever reason. And that if we could just get those registered, I'm not sure. So sure that's the, the best use of all resources for the Republican Party when there are millions of votes in the suburbs and the urban area that we are also uh, gettable for us as Republicans. But um, and and look, I think Kelly's a, an interesting figure. I think it's frustrating for those of us who watched. And I think it's difficult for her to be talking about election integrity when she did join uh, in this kind of integrity uh, uh, issue. And, look, she either got bad information from her consultants or she herself believes that there was this fraud, either of which aren't a great scenario for the future of the Republican Party in Georgia. And I just think she's a damaged candidate in so many ways. So her, her money's going to be welcome, and she can clearly fund this. But hopefully she's going to get better advice than what she had in that losing election.
1: Um, uh, uh, Riley, uh, of course, one of the things that all of us in, in who watch these uh, uh, elections as journalists saw and and Republicans and Democrats both uh, watched it as well, is that uh, it was the Doug Collins challenge of Kelly Leffler in that jungle election, which essentially weakened would have weakened either of them, in her case, weakened Kelly Leffler. And then, of course, uh, Donald Trump added to that by focusing on the so-called rigged election in Georgia. Uh, Doug Collins may very well get into this race, in which case we're once again going to look at a Republican Party uh, fighting among itself and maybe weakening whoever comes out of the race, Riley.
0: Yeah, well, you know, this this announcement of former Senator Lestler's new organization wasn't a surprise to me. We knew in those races that it was gonna be all about turning out the base. And they had so you know, so many issues with turning out their base in terms of former President Donald Trump, you know. Um, saying not to use up the T ballots and having all the kind of the inner fighting in between candidates. And as of right now, we've heard from, I think we heard from Dallas Collins, too, in the AJC just recently. He's not ruling out a run for the Senate or the governor at all. So it seems kind of, you know, they may not have learned their lesson of having all these different candidates throw their hat into the ring. Um, maybe it'll be different this time. But I could see definitely some challenges with the party again if they have all these different candidates trying to get in.
1: Sam Park, one way or the other, Raphael Warnock is going to be a big target next year as he attempts to secure that seat for a full six-year term.
3: Uh, yes, I, I look forward to doing everything I can to re-elect Senator Warnock, um, who who I greatly admire. Just not not just in terms of his story and where he came from, where he demonstrates uh, the possibility of of what this country. Uh, the opportunities that this country can provide, um, but the work that he's been doing from expanding access to health care, uh, the right to vote, uh, so on and so forth. Um, if I may, uh, Bill, you know, I, I do look forward uh, to the day in which we could perhaps go back to the time in which uh, we aren't in a constant uh,
1: political election season um, personally. Yeah, but you would know as well as anyone having to run for re-election once you've been elected for a two-year term. I think, right? <laughs>
2: right, right. Okay, hey, uh, Jim. Uh, uh, if if I could jump in and, and build on something that, that that Heath Heath just said, that that you know that that uh, the, the 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 supposition that there are hundreds of thousands of of white rural voters in Georgia who who don't who aren't who aren't uh, activated. The problem with that, and and we've look, we've this has been this has been the strategy, this has been the Purdue strategy, strategy whether it's uh uh Sunny or David or Donald Trump, uh, that this is that's how, that's how you carry Georgia. The problem is the message that you need to activate those 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 white rural voters. Uh, is is i mean they've they they've, they they have the 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 message republicans have used so far has been very hard just just borderline race, racist and when in going after those voters you lose your your advantage in the suburbs you 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 cut those people loose uh, to, 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 to to pick up on heath's arithmetic you you you're you're chasing hundreds of thousands of voters and you're losing millions in metro atlanta
4: Jim, yeah. yours. Yeah, Jim, you're spot on. Uh, one of the quants, as I call them, the data guys who was down here working for David Perdue and Kelly Leffler in the runoff said for every one voter that Donald Trump, Kelly and David were motivating in rural Georgia, we were losing 1.2 voters in suburban Atlanta. Right. And you do that over the course of hundreds of thousands or millions of votes. And guess what? You lose an election. And so, uh, you know, the, the old saying, why do you rob a bank? Because that's where the money is. Right, Republicans have to run base plus campaigns. Democrats did a great job of that in 2020. We've just got a uh, Raphael Warnock and Ossoff ran. They got their base out and they went to the middle and got independent voters, right? In record numbers. And we got record numbers, but we ran a base only campaign and ignored the suburbs. And we ran the Nathan deal. Brian Kemp Johnny Isaacson type of coalition building we would have won in 2020 uh, it was a ba- it was a bad strategic decision uh, by the candidates and by their teams and if we don't run base plus, the Democrats are going to run- win statewide in the next few cycles however the state is still slightly Republican by all data that we can look at objectively with a few independent voters so Jim your your numbers are right on the the votes are or there in the suburbs, and we've got to find a way to win. And I'm concerned all three of the people we mentioned, Doug Collins, David Perdue, and Kelly Leffler, they can win a Republican primary, but they're they're tragically flawed in winning a general election in 2022 in Georgia, in my opinion.
1: Um, Heath, uh, I, I, I'm going to ask you, I, I'm assuming that you're already uh, deciding some of the people you'll represent in the 22 cycle. Um what, big, what kind of role – let's talk about it through, through the lens of Kelly Loeffler. Uh, uh, one of the reasons that she's uh, uh, supported the Texas lawsuit, one of the reasons that she told Brad Raffensperger to resign because he wasn't willing to support Trump's uh, challenge to the Georgia election is because she was beholden to Donald Trump. She saw winning the election tied to her uh, uh, support for Donald Trump. Uh, as you look at the 2022 cycle, how big a, what are you going to say to your clients about how they have to be thinking about Donald Trump and whether they align with him in 2022? And what should a Kelly Loeffler be thinking about in that regard?
4: Well, and listen, you know, obviously, when I'm talking to my clients in Alabama or Tennessee versus Georgia, it's yeah. different advice. But in Georgia, absolutely, they're going to have to run campaigns more like my former boss, Johnny Isaacson, and Nathan Dill, and Brian Kemp. You've got to have a bigger, broader coalition in order to win, and you can't be 100%. And a bear hug with Donald Trump in every single thing, every way that he campaigns. You're not Donald Trump, number one. Only Donald Trump's Donald Trump. You got to be able to call balls and strikes on that. You got to support the policies, right, that that Trump borrowed from Ronald Reagan and from George W. Bush and others, Um, you know, and it's going to be tough for some of them. But I do think even in the Republican primary in Georgia statewide, uh, you don't have to do what David Perdue and Kelly Leffler did um, in being all Trump all the time, uh, both in personality and in policy.
1: All right. Um, thank you for that. We got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more on Political Rewind. <laughs> A quick program note before we continue with our panel today. Uh, tomorrow, February 23rd, is the one-year anniversary of the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery. Uh, Travis and Gregory McMichael are uh, still waiting to stand trial uh, in the shooting death of Arbery. And so on the show, we're going to take a look at several aspects of that case. One, where does it stand today? What exactly is happening with the prosecution and the defense down there in Brunswick. But in a broader way, what's happening to the, to the search for racial justice uh, for dealing with uh, systemic racism in this country that uh, suddenly became a front-burner issue as a result of the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, and others? So th- that's going to be a special edition of our show tomorrow, and I hope you'll join us. I'm very much uh, looking forward to that one sam park i haven't asked you this in advance so i'm sort of you know it's like you're you go to trial and a lawyer's never supposed to ask a witness a question she or he doesn't know the answer to but what are your constituents telling you about opening schools across cross how do you are parents really right now uh, up in arms about what the heck they want to happen with their kids
3: so of course, Gwinnett uh, has one of the, has the largest school system in the state of Georgia. We teach one in ten students. Um, it is a very complex issue uh, that is not black and white. Um, uh, you know, parents of children with special needs uh, that need that in-person learning. Um, you know, they have very legitimate concerns. Um, the 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 concerns of teachers and their safety, especially uh, given their inability to get vaccinated. Um, Uh, First, um, also very um, uh, uh, legitimate concerns, but also um, a very complex issue. Um, My hope is that hopefully as we see a sustained decline in cases and an increase in vaccine distribution, um, we will get to a spot come uh, hopefully the beginning of the fall semester this year uh, in which we can resume, hopefully if everything goes well, um, in-person teaching.
1: Um, Riley, uh, teachers really believe that they need to be jumped up in the line so they can be vaccinated. But the CDC says that classes, especially for lower grades, uh, schools should be able to meet again uh, without concern about teachers being vaccinated or not. And yet this is a big issue in the state of Georgia. Teachers groups are saying, give us the vaccine. We're exposed.
0: Absolutely, and I think this is an issue that has evolved as well over time tremendously. You know, in the beginning, there was a lot of pushback for opening schools. Lots of schools had to open and then close down again, and now we have the CDC saying um, it's, it's okay in certain to come back in certain environments. You know, and, and teachers want to come back. I think that's something so important to mention. You know, they want to do their job. They, they want to be teaching, but it's hard for them to feel because you know the students might not be at high risk but they still are.
1: Jim, you have a personal connection to this Oh yeah 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 I've
2: got a, a high school teacher daughter uh, and and you know and 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 the data the, the data shows that that once you're you know 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds you spread that just like an adult. And you know the fear is that there there are two fears here uh, for 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 uh, uh, Georgia high school teachers. I think and, and number one is we've got a hundred and eighty some odd school systems and they all have different protocols. And there are some districts, especially out in rural Georgia uh, and elsewhere, where there is no mask mandate, and that uh, and and teachers feel highly highly vulnerable. I, I'd point you to Elbert County. Uh, where where they where they 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 made that decision to 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 uh, give uh, teachers early vaccination, uh, I think they've 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 settled that that feud a little bit now, but uh and then the other part is that of course you've got the one thing that uh, that, that doesn't happen in in most elementary schools you've got you've got a an athletic system, where 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 schools are competing one on one body on body with with uh, with people from other school districts. And that's that's just a, a, a natural mode of of, uh, of, of contracting the, uh, and spreading the virus.
1: Heath, up in your uh, part of the state, up there in Cobb County, you've had at least three that I can think of deaths of teachers to COVID-19, which is a terribly sad state of affairs. Um, and, and so, I, you know, I had the, um, I guess, Eric Tannenblatt, your Republican friend, on the show last week kind of pushed back at me when I said, what are the political implications of vac- not uh, vaccinating teachers in terms of, uh, of the next election cycle? Is Governor Kemp going to face some opposition from teachers for not jumping them up? He thought it was terribly inappropriate. I would turn it into a political question, but let's face it, it is a political question as well as a public health collect, uh, 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 issue.
4: Yeah, un- unfortunately, this whole battle has become political like everything in modern society. Um, you know, look, there there's just a world of data now out there about K through 12, high schools, uh, I have a, I have an 11 year old, a 15 year old, an 18 year old. They've been in school full time since September of last year. The schools are following the proper protocols. They're doing contact tracing. It's just like Dr. Fauci has said. Let's follow the science here. We've heard that for a lot for the last year. So there's no question that everybody K through eight ought to be back in school, and the schools ought to be following the proper protocols, with or without vaccines. If you're a teacher with uh, you know, uh, compromised immune. There's a, there, are, there are accommodations for that. And then there's a legitimate debate around high school like Jim has brought up. But there again, if you follow the proper protocols, just like every other part of society, you can protect those teachers uh, from those students. And we, and it's very clear that the schools that are back in are not having, even the high schools are not having the level of transmission that people fear of. And I, my, my children play three sports, high school basketball down underneath. There was no transmission on any of the teams they played the entire season. So I think we need to follow the data and uh, try to depoliticize this as best we can. And, uh, I'm really concerned we we say that we're concerned about the children that are falling farther behind but good gracious those that haven't been in in school for a year uh, that's a gap year that we're going to be suffering the consequences of for yeah. decades now and uh, we've got it we've got to find a way to get these children back in school full time
1: yeah I've got to say my heart goes out to parents like you Heath who have dealt with this and I'm glad to hear your children have done have thrived despite the uh, virus, uh, so my heart does go out, and I must admit, I'm glad my children have now uh, moved beyond their high school years and college years, even, and I'm not dealing with this issue personally, as so many thousands of families across the state are. Uh, Jim, we've only got a couple minutes left, but one of the longest, bru- one of the longest-lasting uh, uh, wars that Georgia has fought has been between mostly Florida and Georgia now, but it used to be the Florida-Alabama-Georgia water wars over water coming out of the Chattahoochee River and who is going to get access to it. The Supreme Court of the United States, here's a case now between the oystermen of Florida and uh, uh, Georgians, especially along the Flint River down in southwest Georgia. Farmers who want water, oystermen who want water, and this case finally gets to the Supreme Court today.
2: Right, and it's, 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 it's built around an oyster bed, a very famous yeah. a, a oyster bed in, in Ap- Ap- Apalachicola Bay, I think. And, and the question is, you know, they, they, the, the Florida says uh, Metro Atlanta is sucking up too much water, and that's increasing salinity in the bay. Uh, but the, the, our, the counter argument from, from, from uh, Georgia is that it, that uh, these oyster beds have been over-harvested. Uh, that's one reason for the decline. And then there's global warming.
1: Um, Sam, we're virtually, we've got, a, it's just a couple of minutes, but we should also point out that this also has an impact on some of the water supply for people right here in metro Atlanta, as well as the people who listen to us across the southwest corner of the state.
3: Yeah, I, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I recall um, some study or report in which um, the metro Atlanta area, despite the, the boom in population we've seen over the past decade, uh, was using its water in a sustainable manner. In, in, in a wise uh, way, uh, despite the population growth that we've seen. And so, you know, if, if you want to foster some bipartisanship, I think you'll find a lot of support amongst Democrats and Republicans uh, in Georgia on this issue, and that, uh, you know, we're,
1: we're doing everything we can to conserve and properly use the water that we
3: receive. All
1: right. It's a huge issue, and it just points us to the fact that in the years to come, uh, water in this region is going to be a bigger and bigger matter for political leaders to try to figure out how to deal with. We're completely out of time uh, for today's show. Representative Sam Park, Riley Bunch, Heath Garrett, Jim Galloway, thank you for a really interesting conversation today. Uh, we're back again tomorrow to t- talk about uh, the year since Ahmad Arbery's shooting death. Uh, And I hope you'll all join us for that conversation. My thanks to Jesse Neiswanger and Amelia Brock for their work on the show today. Sam Burmistaz has a day off, but he's back with us tomorrow. Thank goodness. We're back tomorrow as well. And in the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask or maybe two. See you all tomorrow.